I had come in because my defibrillator had signaled its low battery and we were going to have to put on the calendar a procedure to replace the device. And he clearly noticed that I was upset and not feeling good about this. And there was sort of an actual sigh of like, Oh God, I'm going to have to stay longer. He he had been like halfway out the door and then he kind of had to come in and say like, what, you know, what gives you trepidation or what, what makes you pause? And I think that comes down to this real question of like, what does it mean to practice medicine? What does it mean to be a healer? Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Catherine Stanifer, the author of Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life, which was shortlisted for the J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Prize from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. Her previous writing appeared in the Best American Essays 2016 and won the 2015 Iowa Review Award in Nonfiction. She was a 2017 Marion Weber Healing Arts Fellow at the Mesa Refuge, a 2018 Logan Nonfiction Fellow at the Cary Institute for Global Good, and a 2018 Writer in Residence at Gentle Arts. She earned her MFA in Creative Nonfiction at the University of Arizona and teaches for Ashland University's Low Residency MFA. Katie, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so before we get into any of the specific discussions of your experiences in your book, a couple of thoughts I wanted to throw your way that I just couldn't get out of my head. Um, first, this is not the first time I've read about someone's experience of the U.S. privatized insurance-based medical system, <laughs> uh, nor is it likely to be the last time. Uh, there are a lot of Americans in the world. Um, but it may be the most in-depth, long-term experiential writing that I've mm. personally read about it. And somehow this time around, it made me wonder if reading this book as an American, where this system is a very real part of life, might be a very different emotional experience than reading it as someone who is not American and who has never lived in America. Um, mm. I'm Canadian, and now I live in the UK, both places which have public government-run healthcare. And I mean, while those healthcare systems can be super frustrating and extremely difficult because no system is perfect, there are some things that I have never even had to consider about the healthcare of myself or my family that come up over and over and over again in your book. And mm -hmm. my fundamental kind of emotional response as someone outside the system is, I have to admit, disbelief. And it is extremely hard for me to fight that. It's not that I think you're lying. You're clearly not. It's just the things you talk about as fundamental table stakes in the US are so far removed from my life that I struggle to understand how such a system came to be and persists. Wow, it's really a pleasure to hear someone summarize it that way. <laughs> I get emails and DMs from people every single day um, who are having similar experiences in the system. I, I know that's true. I'm still struggling to connect it to something that is real and lived and not like a dystopian yeah. book or a dystopian <laughs> television show? Does that just sound really pretentious and terrible? No, no, it sounds the way it should be, right? Um, it is not good news to be well adjusted to a system that is not functioning and perhaps even pathological. I mean, there's very little in the American healthcare system that 
strikes me as actually being caring. I've thought a lot since writing some of the scenes that come later in the book where I'm fighting for care in a particularly um, high maintenance way. I've thought a lot about how if the healthcare system were a relationship in any other part of our life, this idea that in American healthcare, you have to call and call and call and get put on hold for these long periods of time and get told there's nothing they can do. And that, um, you know, different agencies that need to talk to each other, don't talk to each other. And you as the patient are left trying to do that work and, um, you know, not knowing if you will be covered or, t- or taken care of in some very basic ways, like none of that within the context of any other relationship would be considered caring. And we've just gotten so far away from the question of what it means to actually support people's health because of the way that American healthcare is tied up in um, the profit motive and bureaucracy. So, I mean, to hear you speak, it's like being inside the cage at the zoo and having other people outside the cage look in and be like, hey, you're in a cage. <laughs> like, why are you in there? <laughs> Come on out. It's nice out here. And yeah, I like, think why are you choosing forget. this cage? Clearly, it's yeah, a cage. <laughs> forget that we're living in a cage and a cage of our own making. And one of the things that's been really interesting about my experience releasing this book is not only receiving all of those communications from people who are having really similar experiences to what I had, which is validating, but horrifying. You know, I sort of wished that I were the the crazy one, the one outside the curve, and it's not true. But on the other hand, I'm doing a lot of book clubs with um, upper class or upper middle class white suburban Americans who, because they've always had access to the lighter side of the American private healthcare system, they're really disconnected from the role that public policy plays. You know, when you're having a conversation about something like uh, whether or not to pass the Affordable Care Act and what should be included in that, a lot of these folks don't have a horse directly in the game because they've always had access to insurance. And they know that it's not perfect either. And some of them really um, still struggled against certain parts of the American system, like when quote unquote, pre-existing conditions could still be um, not covered by insurers, which luckily is no longer the case. Um, so so specific parts of the legal landscape might have affected them. But they basically had access and they often had access to pretty good networks of care or standards of care. And they're just totally unaware of the way voting for um, politicians or expressing support for specific policies impacts the lives of other Americans and the distrust of high taxes to support community safety nets. Um, you know, they, they may not know anyone or many people who exist outside the privilege that they live in. So there's sort of this giant gap in the US where I think most people know that our healthcare is a huge problem, but a lot of the people who have the most power to fix it are the ones who uh, don't don't feel that or see that on a day-to-day basis. And I do hope that this book, I understand that um, by being a white, pretty privileged American, I'm not a relatable narrator for a lot of people. And I think that at the heart of this story is the question, like, if I can't navigate this, who in the world can? It definitely left me 
this is going to sound probably really weird, but really feeling a sense of privilege in my own healthcare situation and all the various impacts there. I, I keep thinking about, there's two stories that I keep thinking about in my own healthcare experience. Um, one was I was having these sort of really terrible day long, like abdominal pains. And it was something like at nine o'clock at night, I did a little internet search, read some stuff and went, you know what, I should probably go get this looked at. It's probably not any of these bad things. But if it happens to be something like appendicitis, it's better to rule that out. Uh, and I showed up at the hospital just nearby at nine o'clock at night. I had forgotten my wallet. I didn't have <laughs> any ID on me because I had forgotten my I brought a book to read, but I forgot my wallet. Um, and they just said, no problem. Just give us your name and we'll find your healthcare number and no problem. Wow. So I was there for a while. Once they, they took me in right away because they also were like, we got to rule out appendicitis. Once they ruled that out, I sat and waited for something like four hours, hence the book, um, <laughs> in order to figure out that it wasn't really a, a major issue. Um, but I was able to get in. I didn't need any ID. They didn't charge me, didn't get a bill. Didn't even need to see a driver's license. Didn't have to go back with ID at any point in time. It just, I went in, I waited for a while, I got the care I needed, I got the reassurance I needed, and I booked it out of there at 3 a.m. after all was said and done. And the second one, which is the only proxy, even close to proxy, that I have to the American experience that you describe at length in your book, which is I needed a, a surgery and to see a specialist. And with a previous doctor that I had, I waited for something like three years and still hadn't gotten the referral. And I switched doctors and got the referral almost instantly, even though it took another year for the referral to happen because it mm. wasn't super urgent surgery. All it took to get that referral finally was administrators in my doctor's office who gave a damn Mm -hmm. That's all it took, mm -hmm. right, was some people at the front desk, a receptionist who took it upon herself to advocate on my behalf and just draw a line in the sand through some of the bullshit that was happening uh, on the other side of the phone. And that was such a powerful experience for me about the importance of advocating, even in a system where I ended up having that surgery, going through it, not having to pay a dime for the surgery. Um, wow. And then also the experience of recovering from that surgery where I had to take three weeks off work. And those were the three most financially unstable weeks of my life and the following weeks after. And there were no healthcare bills on that other than the fact that I took three weeks unpaid leave from my job. Um, and those are the those are two things I kept thinking over and over and over again about my own life. And they're the closest sort of proxies I can come to, to the American experience. And that kind of freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. You know, Americans are not a chill people. And I, I think there are a lot of these background conditions that we live with that we're not even aware that they are abnormal or could be going a different way, right? This idea that you would have a surgery and not get a bill for it is stunning. And yet also, of course, taking time off is, um, is, is a burden. Uh, and, and I think we all in modern industrial societies do live with some kind of pressure around like, 
is there actually enough time to rest and, mm-hmm. and what does that part of the care look like? But yeah, my story, especially as told in Lightning Flowers, is really one of seeing the enormous difference that the individuals you interface with make in terms of, you know, in the beginning of the book, uh, when I'm uninsured and trying to figure out how to get heart surgery, I really only access that care because people are willing to go to bat for me to help me navigate the system kind of from the back end, like, oh, here's how you can do things that might not make it cost $180,000 out of pocket. Um, Or, you know, my surgeon donates his fee, he gets the anesthesiologist to donate his fee, and he uh, advocates for me with the the med tech company, St. Jude Medical, uh, who's now Abbott. So there's that side. But then on the other side, there are all of these folks working in healthcare office administration or physicians who are just like a little bit removed from what uh, care is required at that time and how their participation slows things down or speeds things up. I mean, it just was impenetrable. And to me, when it matters to that extent, who is in a particular position, that's a sign that the system is not working. You know, it should not it's it's wonderful when you have the one administrator who's going to cut through all the bull and um, get you what you need. But that is uh, shaky ground to be standing on for people's health. It's luck of the draw. It's luck of who your doctor happens to have hired to work in their office. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most Americans who have sat where I sit in our healthcare system, meaning they've had some kind of health crisis actually come up. And so they've bumped up against the lifetime limits of insurance policies or pre- getting pre-existing conditions covered or not covered, or even just, um, you know, neither of those things are legal anymore, but we still have these plans that have pretty high monthly premiums and then still have these enormous deductibles and co-pays. And so all of the math of that, um, HMOs that require that your primary care provider sign off on any specialist visits, which actually, you know, for many of us then creates more visits or um, the in-network physician having to do the out-of-network authorization with the insurance company. And like they're, they have no reason to do that. They're not getting paid for that. That's not, there's not a profit motive there for them. And because the US system works on profit motive, that's part of the the slogginess. So most Americans who have sat where I sit in interfacing these things, um, just really come to understand how uh, labyrinthine it has become because of the profit mandate. And because everybody is trying to make sure that they keep their bottom lines looking good rather than just facilitating care. And I'm sure it doesn't feel that way to the administrator sitting at the desk necessarily a lot of the time. They're not like, well, we better deny this patient because of, (laughs) you know, making a living. But they have so much paperwork to get through that there are a lot of ritual ways that things just get lost in the shuffle or um, unattended to. And yeah, it's not it's not supportive care. And it's so complicated now that it's really hard to see our way out of this mess. And that's really where I see American healthcare 
log jammed. It's like, we have to do something brave. There are going to be disruptions to the system. Also, it's a system that must be disrupted. There's a, a quote in the book that stuck with me. And um, it is, for the first time, I could see a way a life came unwound, the way illness could mean one month without a job than another, the way bills could take you under, how once things started to happen to you, it got harder to get up. And I think that is such a good quote that encapsulates the sadness that I feel about the American healthcare mm. system, that something mm-hmm. that happens to you can have such a huge lasting impact beyond the immediately physical. Obviously, healthcare right. issues have a lasting physical impact on us. Um, chronic illnesses, accidents, all that kind of stuff, setting aside anything else, medical impacts can be extremely long lived. But there's also the long-lived nature of the financial burden in the U.S. that just intertwines with this and makes it so much messier and so much harder on everybody. Yeah. Yeah, the one-two punch of the American healthcare system is that on the one hand, you have a culture that doesn't have room for people being ill, doesn't have a way to collectively acknowledge or face death or really to be in relationship to um, human transition at all. You know, the American culture is so about the technological and the sleek and the modern and the new and the innovative. And and there's no sense of um, the rest of that cycle and how we hold space for people when their conditions really change them. And then there's this unnecessary level that you are gesturing towards, which is the idea that the act of seeking care itself would explode a life. The act of getting the care and then paying for it would explode a life. Like it is hard enough to be a human in relationship to death. It is hard enough to be, whether you're young or old, someone who goes through something that fundamentally changes what they're able to do or not able to do or marks their relationships with their loved ones. Like these are big human condition situations. They are um, problems that none of us get to step aside from. And the other level, the other layer is we can design systems that, you know, as you said, nothing is going to be perfect, but there are some very basic ways that safety nets can operate where we acknowledge that the other things are hard enough. We don't need finances and um, these labyrinthine logistics to be a part of it. So I do want to talk a little bit more in depth about your experiences um, with the healthcare system and also your experience in trying to understand uh, the medical device you have. Um, and so I think probably the best place to start is actually to talk about long QT syndrome, because that is an integral part of this story. Yeah, long QT syndrome is a heart condition in which uh, the heart can get desynchronized and it quivers instead of beating. So it's a mutation in the potassium channel. Um, essentially, it's an electrical problem where someone can end up going into sudden cardiac death. And it tends to express itself in young adulthood, especially among females. My younger sister started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room when she was 18. And it took us uh, some time to figure out what was going on. And we're very lucky that 
every time her heart sort of lapsed into this quivering, it ended up restoring its rhythm. A heart that's not pumping blood adequately is not getting oxygen to the key organs. And so that's how someone dies of sudden cardiac death. Um, in, in our case, both of us luckily were uh, able to resuscitate ourselves. Um, but long QT syndrome is deadly for many people. You know, the, they often ask when they're diagnosing whether there's a history of unexplained car accidents or unexplained drowning, uh, unexplained young deaths that look like something else. And the bottom line is that uh, a heart that has long QT syndrome, my sister and I both have type two, which is related to the adrenaline response in the body. And um, that means that sudden stimuli like my sister's alarm clock would go off and she would go into cardiac arrest for me, a phone rang. And those are like pretty common stimuli. Hey, we don't think of those as remarkable, shocking things around us. <laughs> no, no. And that's what's so tricky. So long QT has a lot of different types. Type one can have a little bit more to do with physical activity and type three often occurs during the sleep cycle. But um, type two, you know, especially back when I was diagnosed, when we didn't know quite as much as we know now, the genetics have really improved in terms of what pediatric cardiologists can tell their patients about their condition and how we understand them to operate. But back then, especially it was like, okay, well, is everything dangerous? Like, how do I live with this? You're telling me not to go for a run, but also it's not necessarily the run that's the problem. It's like, if I go on the run and get startled by another group of hikers, right? And and so in that way, you know, COVID has been very familiar to me in a lot of senses because I've had these periods of my life where I am expecting that death could arrive in these banal ways kind of all the time. If If every time an ambulance passes or a phone rings, you could die. Like, how do you even make decisions about keeping yourself safe? I've often in my own life thought about the fact of how remarkable it is that with enough practice or enough exposure, we can, humans can kind of get used to just about everything. And that is both a feature <laughs> and a bug. And I suspect the same is true of you and your sister, something that I probably can't fathom ever getting used to that sort of feeling like there's a threat around every corner, I'm assuming, and the sense I got from your book is that it becomes mundane because it is every day. Yeah, you know, it's both. And I, I think it depends on how you're built. One of the things that I've really had to wrestle with is that part of the reason we in the US specifically are so enamored with technology is that it makes it seem like we can control things that are fundamentally uncontrollable. So, you know, without spoiling the book, I think it's it's easy to say that what my book eventually talks about or asks is when is it worth it to use these technologies? And when is it actually not necessary and something that we're doing out of a sort of mythos? When we use something like an implanted cardiac defibrillator to serve as a sort of insurance plan against something like long QT syndrome, what we're essentially giving ourselves a permission slip to do is to go off duty, 
is to not be so hypervigilant, which doesn't mean that everyone effectively transitions out of that state. I think those of us who live with chronic conditions that can be life-threatening, of course, we're sort of aware of things in a different way. But I do think that part of why Americans love technology so much and the the way that it can make us feel like we're controlling the uncontrollable is that uh, we don't, we sort of get to take out of the equation death by this one thing that we've identified, right? So a lot of people, I think, get their ICD and then they feel better. And in some folks' medical journeys, that's a real thing. The idea that they could have an arrhythmia that might kill them and that they know there's a device inside their body watching for that arrhythmia that might be able to reverse it. That's that's a real comfort. And there's a sort of uh, invisible layer there of all that comes with the device itself and the problems that a device can cause or the idea that you may never use a device, but there was still a cost to that device. And I think um, I really worried when I put the book out that I might be considered a divisive figure, that I might be attacking a piece of technology that a lot of people find really, I mean, it's literally near to their hearts. (laughs) (laughs) Both literally and figuratively. (laughs) But yeah, this idea of like, but that's my lifesaver. And of course, it's worth it. And I've been surprised actually by how many people are carrying the kind of baggage that have come with the device for me. Um, But I think I, uh, in questioning the device, have sort of had to surrender myself to that idea that all of us die and that all of us are capable of dying all the time. And there is, there is a mundanity in it of like, oh, yeah, I just can't use these types of alarm clocks. Like, I need to set a musical tone on my phone instead of a sharp, startling alarm or... um you know, there, there's a whole list of drugs to avoid that we have to be vigilant about that can lengthen the QT interval of the heartbeat further and cause more arrhythmia. Um, but yeah, there's a sort of double consciousness there of like, in some ways, we do fold that sense of risk into our daily life. And in some ways, we find ways to say we're no longer at risk. I think that's part of the human act of living is to just ignore risk as much as we can um, so that we can focus on being alive. And that makes sense to me. And it's, it's why the ICD is what it is. The ICD forms such a linchpin in so many aspects of your book and the story that you tell in it. And I think it's important um, to talk a little bit about what came before the ICD in order to understand this idea of cost that you spend a lot of time trying to reckon with in the book, both from a standpoint of quality of life, your own, and um, how you want to live your life, and whether or not the device enables you to do that better or causes more problems, and then also the actual device itself and the cost of creating it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about before, so after uh, the long QT was discovered, and the treatment before the ICD and some of the impacts overall of having long QT on your life, because you, there were big impacts for you. 
There were big impacts for me. At the time that I passed out in a parking lot, I was 24. I was working as a ski instructor and a climbing guide in order to be able to build my writing career, which is what I did in the off season. And that means I was using my body literally to make a living. And when I woke up in that parking lot, I was, um, I was very aware right away of what it probably was because of my younger sister's experience. My younger sister, as I said, started passing out in her dorm room uh, when she was a freshman in college. And so she already had a device at that point. And so I had this sense of like, oh my God, here's, here's where everything is going. And my initial diagnosis included the sense that I didn't need an implanted cardiac defibrillator and that I would be fine on a drug called beta blockers that prevent the heart rate from getting high, which can cut off a lot of the risk of this arrhythmia actually forming. And I went on these beta blockers, but as someone who was as fit as I was, who like <laughs> basically ran up mountains for a living. Um, my resting heart rate was already so low that by putting me on a vasodilator, I then every time I stood up um, was sort of, uh, you know, spinning, I, I thought I was going to pass out. And, and in those moments, trying to ride my bike downtown or trying to go for a hike up one of the hills near where I lived in Wyoming, each time I wouldn't know if that was actually my heart or just the medication. And either way, it was terrifying. I was like on the edge of passing out all the time. And uh, that was unacceptable, you know, in the life that I was actually living. And so that's the vantage point at which I sought a second opinion from my younger sister's doctor, who was down in Boulder, Colorado. And he was the one who asked me, has anyone ever told you you have an arrhythmia? And I said, no. And then I thought again, and was like, you know, some nurse the one night I spent in the hospital after I passed out in Wyoming, she had said that there was some scary arrhythmia in the middle of the night. And he said, okay, I need you to get me those strips. I need to be able to see, you know, they would have had me hooked up all night to heart monitors. And they normally don't send that stuff with uh, records when you request them, but like tell them I need everything. Mm -hmm. And he received those and was able to see that I'd been sort of hovering, um, on this edge where I was having a few beats of arrhythmia and then maybe one normal beat and then going back into the arrhythmia. And to him, this was just too scary, especially knowing that my sister had been going into cardiac arrest. And so he's the one who told me I needed the device. And what followed from there was, uh, so it was five months total from when I passed out to when I ended up getting a device. And during that time, I ended up moving 500 miles from my home in Wyoming down to Colorado. So this surgeon could perform the surgery and donate his fee. And so it absolutely uh, changed my relationship to my body in that I didn't even know what I felt. I was like, am I about to die? Am I about to die? Pretty much all the time. My partner didn't know whether or not he could leave me alone. He would be like, can you call someone while I'm gone so that someone will know if you pass out? I mean, the, the level of hypervigilance was just insane. But then also as someone who'd been making a living through my body, um, to have that relationship change in the way it did was really stunning. And then I actually uprooted my life and moved to get the surgery. And I did that because we brainstormed like as an uninsured person in 2009, the healthcare debates were raging in the US. The Affordable Care Act had not yet been passed. There just were no routes 
other than paying out of pocket, which would have been $180,000. So that period of my life, you know, shifted my geographic location in addition to my relationship to my body and my relationship to my partner and so much else. Yeah, it, it is in all ways that I can think of the sort of definition of a life changing event. <laughs> it was an absolute rupture. What's I find, um, I think a really important thing that comes up over and over and over in the book is this thinking about medical treatments, whether it's devices or, um, uh, beta blockers or any kind of prescription drugs, anything, whatever the treatment contains. And combining that with this idea of quality of life, a thing might save your life and prevent you from dying, but there are often very significant impacts on what that life now looks like. And it can be dramatically different than what you expected of your life or what you were planning for your life or what your life looked like yesterday. And that is definitely a reckoning in your book that, um, is, is throughout the book. It, there's lots of sort of peaks and valleys. There's clearly low lights and clearly highlights, but it's a very constant theme that it feels like you and your doctors, uh, throughout the book are constantly struggling with or um maybe even i don't know that combative is the right word but there are times <laughs> when it feels like combat right mm-hmm. where it's it's trying to understand if something is worth it and around the concept of worth in the book is very much tied both what is the cost of it but also what am i getting out of it what is the win and you can't understand worth without understanding both. Yeah, that is really, really true. Um, really early in the book, early in my experiences, the responses I tended to get from medical practitioners were often not appropriate for where I was in my life, for my age, for my other relative physical ability you know, cardiologists don't see a ton of young people. Uh, Pediatric cardiologists would, obviously, because that's their specific population. But within a cardiology office, when someone like me at age 24 walks in, um, it's a weird scene, right? The the next oldest people are usually the adult children of the patients who are helping them with their walkers. Yeah, you're usually the caregiver, right? That's, that's, you know, you look at you and think, okay, that's the caregiver. Where's the old person? Yeah. Yeah. And so the sense of like, how do we administer medical device, uh, medical advice in a way that is not only accurate to the latest research, but also appropriate to the individual in front of us, um, I think is attention really throughout the book. And it is the tension in my body, that question of like, what does it mean to have a life? What does it mean to feel alive while you are alive? And what is the right of the patient to be the one who sets those boundaries to be the one who takes certain risks or doesn't take certain risks. And there is a kind of confidence that I did not have at the beginning of my process, in which I really understood that 
these doctors had gone to medical school and I had not, and I could like barely get through the Wikipedia page on what long QT is. <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm in no position to sort of push back. But I also knew that the conditions of my life were suddenly intolerable. And this really loops back to what I was saying earlier about the way one of the wounds of American uh, our, the American orientation toward healthcare more broadly. It's just that we don't have a way to culturally respond to the fact of illness, to the grief that are contained in these things. Cause I think there is a certain amount of like, sometimes you get a diagnosis and there's really not a choice and you have to make really hard decisions and you have to go through um, the process of of having those treatments and you might find it worth it. And it also might be terrible, but I don't think we um, hold enough space for the emotional experience of that. And then we also are really um, a system that places a lot of trust in our professionals. And it's not to say that we shouldn't. But I really came to understand that as someone living in the semi rural, western interior west of the United States, as someone who was diagnosed with a fairly rare condition, and was a rare age group for these physicians, that there were, it took me a while to understand there were experts studying these things. And there was new information that could speak to my situation. And I just wasn't being connected with it. So part of this question of like, what is worth it is, are the options we're being offered actually the only options or actually the right options? And I think there are a lot of places in my story that people maybe did the best they could. And with a little bit of different information, we might have made a different situation. And and so that really created in me throughout my experiences, a little bit more of a confidence to push back to listen to what my body was telling me about a situation. Um, And to pay attention to what it was that was going to lead me back toward aliveness. Um, If we really if we really are in a place where we think we're going to die without something, I think most of us are going to do that. And it's not always true in a society that privileges technology or where research is not moving around in the way it needs to be. And that's sort of the grief of my story. There's a a few places in the book, in particular moments um, in the midst of receiving some kind of medical treatment quite often in the midst of surgeries before after some types of treatment where this this idea that we all have to face at some point that all intersects with our lives, but certainly I think you've probably interacted with more, is this term medically necessary and what it actually <laughs> means and how how to try and parse that phrase. Because I think one of the things that comes through in the book and in exactly what you just said is there are moments when I think there's a clarity around medical, medically necessary and that phrase that's important and that needs to be understood in order to make good choices about what you want 
to happen to your body or what the risks are that you want to take on. But I think that there are also very definitely examples in your book of times when the term medically necessary are used in a, I don't want to say as an excuse, because I think that's the wrong word. I don't, I didn't get the sense reading your book that you felt that anyone that was treating you at any level was being unresponsible or sort of irresponsible or intentionally opaque or like, you know, like you said, they were doing the best they knew at the time. But it felt in certain places like that term was sort of you'd ask and say, but why, why did you do this? And they'd be like, it's medically necessary. And just kind of like, <laughs> use that as a like, just do what we tell you, young person kind of thing. And it, <laughs> it, it reminds me that it, it made me think of, um, the idea of kind of weaponizing some of this stuff, even when we don't intend to, um, and how really smart people, scientists, doctors, or specialists can often unintentionally weaponize these things in a way that can be really damaging and in a way they don't necessarily know. And I feel like that term is one of those really dangerous terms that has so much power, but that can be wielded so badly. Yes. Yeah, it's terrifying to go, quote unquote, against medical advice um, to do something that is against what you're being told is medically necessary. And yet, one of the things that my story really excavated is that if you know, if you choose not to take a medication that's prescribed to you, the way it goes down in your medical chart is patient non-compliant, Oof. right? Not non-compliance is the descriptor for that behavior a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and compliance as an idea suggests that our job is to show up and be told what to do. That medical interactions are not a conversation, that conditions are fixed in one way, and that I think it erases a lot of the tension that can exist where we don't have enough information or we're making judgment calls. And to be non-compliant to someone's judgment can actually be a great move. (laughs) It can be the best decision you can make at that moment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This question of like, you are treating a condition that you see as described within pretty narrow bounds. And I, as the patient, am treating my life. I need, I need responsiveness to my life in, in narrative medicine. Um, Sayantani Dasgupta defines narrative medicine as the sacred act of storytelling in the clinical encounter. And I think about that a lot in terms of like, are we just charting vitals and, you know, taking the bullet points of something so we can sort of run it through our robotic like brains and spit out some answers, which sometimes is what needs to happen. I don't want to say that none that like none of this is black and white. Um, but at the same time, there can be a lot of ways that that fails to notice what's actually most important. And I think what happened to me as a young person is that I kept thinking I was fixing the problem of death. I kept thinking I was doing things that would make me not die. And then something else would come up and I would almost die again. And I had this very visceral understanding that there's nothing you can do to prevent 
death, actually, if it wants to come, when it wants to come, you can think that you're making all of these decisions that keep you safe, and there will be something that sneaks through. And on the other hand, there are all these people who are not making decisions uh, that are solely in the name of safety or health or whatever, and and they keep living. And there's just a an element of chaos here that is really hard to address. And the, the question of what treatments end up being worth it, if you think on the other side of that treatment, you will have a long life versus what treatments are worth it. If on the other side of that treatment, you might not have a long life, you might just face death again. There's a really different calculation unfolding there. And I think as a young person, I developed a real radar for are people actually seeing me? Are people aware that they're practicing medicine into the story that they are practicing medicine? If, if you want to put me on uh, a high octane blood thinner, because I may or may not have a clot in my lung, are you putting me on that high octane blood thinner? Cause you don't want to get sued if something happens to me later, mm. or are you putting me on it? Because you really think that that clot is there and needs to be dissolved with this method. And this is, you know, this is um, not just the safety of the body in like a more theoretical term. I think we think a lot in terms of like treatments as insurance plans against death. And it's just not a thing. It's just not a thing. Um, so yeah, I, I am leery of the term medically necessary because there are things that are not medical in nature that are necessary too. I think maybe that's it. Yeah, it's only it's only a certain type of necessary and it's a point of view of necessity. And it's also such a complicated moment because when you are using a healthcare system, regardless of where it is, I think we can all identify with looking at a doctor and not knowing what to do because the expertise is not ours. And there are some things that cannot be quickly understood well enough to make a decision yourself. And so there are some times when we do kind of have to outsource that decision to somebody else who we can only hope has our best interests at heart. And there is a very real complicated dialogue in any doctor's office of, and I've experienced this myself, this frustration when a doctor will not give me advice, <laughs> right? Like that can be just <laughs> as frustrating if uh, the experience of having uh, a medical professional put out some options, but not help you understand what those options mean, and then ask you to make a choice between things that are meaningless, right? Yeah, or scary. Yep. And so yep. you both need that person and that person's judgment and count on that person's judgment. But also, as you say, that person's judgment is from a point of view and is not always considering the person that they're looking in front of them and the 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 singular worth they're looking at sort of an array of data and a bunch mm -hmm. of studies which are great and important and valuable but ultimately it's a person not a study in front of you yeah and i think what you gestured toward earlier the way that medically necessary quote unquote can become used to make people go away <laughs> or um, 
you know, dismiss, dismiss the nagging sense. There was one encounter I had that's not in the book. The first time I met the physician who I call Dr. Garrick, um, where I had come in because my defibrillator had signaled its low battery and we were going to have to put on the calendar a procedure to replace the device. And he clearly noticed that I was upset and not feeling good about this. And there was sort of an actual sigh of like, Oh God, I'm going to have to stay longer. He he had been like halfway out the door and then he kind of had to come in and say like, what, you know, what gives you trepidation or what, what makes you pause? And I think that comes down to this real question of like, what does it mean to practice medicine? What does it mean to be a healer? Electrophysiology is hard because the science is very advanced. And so you tend to get a lot of these very advanced brains who sometimes are more scientific and mathematically inclined than, um, you know, <laughs> they, you know, they didn't sign up to like, cuddle preschoolers. <laughs> and their, their bedside manner is not great. <laughs> right. And so um, this was one of those places that, you know, I, I needed as part of my medical decision making process, not just the, well, this is what we should do. And that should make you feel better. But also to have someone be with me in that being true, right? It's not that sometimes things aren't medically necessary, but it also has to do with um, what are the ways we attend to what's going on inside our bodies in response to that. And medical systems that are just linear and logistical uh, don't serve a healing function. And maybe that's fine. One thing I think a lot about is like, maybe the electrophysiologists just need to perform the procedure and I need to have a different point person whose job it is within the medical system to sort of shepherd shepherd us around and help us understand um, the options or, or the experiences we might go through. But either way, the system certainly is not doing that. For sure. I think of other systems, in fact, the system that I work daily in as a programmer, which is very far removed from medicine, but we have different people with different expertise. You don't put the heavy, hardcore backend programmer in a room with the client because they're not going to have a productive, useful conversation. You put someone <laughs> in there who can understand and identify with the client, but who also can translate the person in the back ends, right? Like you put someone who can translate back and forth. That's a really critical role in a lot of, um, in a lot of organizations and structures. And it definitely feels often like that's a gap in medicine. Yeah. Well, and one of the amazing things that Dr. Michael Ackerman, who's my genetic cardiologist says near the end of the book is I am the great advisor, not the Gestapo. Mm. And he talks about how if patients don't feel listened to, that's when they get high maintenance. And so part of creating systems that actually work for people is cutting out the kinds of hysteria that I ended up feeling in my body where I had to call and call and call and then things weren't happening. And then I'm, you know, yelling at the billing person, which it's not their fault. And also the fact of my yelling is quite logical. You know, we scream when we haven't been heard for a certain amount of time. Most of us 
do have the emotional skills or the cultural training to like, not just go around screaming at people as the first thing. And so I like to say that hysteria is the liberator of authenticity. And one of the things I had to wrestle with in writing this book was like, I feel like a monster. I feel like I was a monster during this era when I was constantly having to like, you know, I was crying on the phone with all these insurance people and getting mad and, you know, forcing their hand. And that was the only way to get things done in that system. And so I think there's actually a whole level of, we think of it as inefficient to take the time to be with a patient in that room. We think of it as inefficient to hire the extra person whose job it is to be like a patient navigator and, and um, be with them before their surgery and also be with them after and explain whatever went on. But actually, I have a suspicion that it would be quite good in monetary and efficiency terms to take care of some of these places that um, things just get really ugly and really wild. And patients being unheard creates these other ripple effects. So your book hands off between telling the story of your experience with long QT syndrome and the medical system and a subset of stories about you trying to understand where your defibrillator came from and what it cost, not just in dollars, but other things that are harder for us to quantify. So why was that important to you? Because it clearly was extremely important to you for a period of time so much so that you traveled quite a bit to try and understand the device and where it came from more, more, more clearly. There's a couple of answers to that question. One of the answers is just that the way that question landed in my body at the beginning, I couldn't, I couldn't remove it. So this question of like, where did the metal inside me come from? Is it possible it came from a conflict minerals area? What other human or plant and animal suffering might have been caused in getting the resources that now are in my body? Can we consider a life-saving device actually life-saving when we add it all up? That idea landed in my body right after I had accidentally taken three shocks to the heart, which is the scene that opens the book. And I will never quite be able to put a finger on why that happened the way it did. It was a very otherworldly experience. I think of it as actually quite a spiritual moment. And in the weeks after the shocks, I thought I was back in that daily hypervigilance, right? I thought I might take lightning from inside my body at any moment in the coffee shop, riding my bike in front of my classroom. And the only way I could survive that experience was really to ask, like, if this thing in me is as likely to hurt me as save me, if it is this thing that I don't control that now feels actually predatory, how do I work with that? Like, what do I make of that? Is, is that coming from the metal itself in some way? Do I contain this suffering? And, you know, at that point, I was a I was in relationship with death in the way I described earlier that I kind of understood that you can put a defibrillator in someone's body and save their life in some kind of short term, but you actually might not save their life at all. Something could go wrong with their defibrillator that causes their death. Something could go wrong that's totally unrelated to their defibrillator that causes their death. And so the sense that we were doing this sort of like elaborate dance to prevent something that can't be prevented was <laughs> really clear to me. And 
I was the kind of person who would think to have this question anyway. You know, I was obsessed with shopping at farmer's markets and buying um, only used clothing or clothing made of organic materials or, you know, recycled plastic bottles, pants. or <laughs> So this was <laughs> very things. much a question kind of already in your wheelhouse. Yes. Yeah, I, I really had been living for a long time with what it meant to be a human on the planet who who impacted that planet and what it meant to be in industrial society. Like, was there a way to live in right relation? And having this device in my body and not being sure that I thought it was actually worth it because it might not actually save my life anyway and might cause me more harm than good. When that math started to shift, that's when I was really like... I, I really want to follow this question. I need to follow this question. And I think what I didn't see as explicitly at the time that I understand enormously now is just this question of why am I alive? And why am I alive when other people are not alive? I mean, it's really to investigate the global origins of a device. I did go to many mines in the US, but I found myself very drawn to um, questions of global citizenship because of all the more invisible ways that we are connected to other people in other places and the stories we tell ourselves about that. You know, we tell ourselves stories about development and what we're bringing, quote unquote, to other countries in the same way we talk about technology. We really act as though it's always a gift and always an answer and as though there's no nuance there. And so that, um, that question really enabled me to try to understand what it meant to have survived the things that I had and like what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And there's probably a lot more for me to write about that from the vantage point I sit now, like having both written that book and finished that book. But I think one of the things that um, has been really important to me since completing the process and also, you know, I, I don't think it gives too much away because there's so much that happens in the book along, along the path. Um, I don't think it gives too much away to say that I will not get another ICD going forward. And I think to look at the cost of a defibrillator as part of the calculus of whether or not it should go in any individual body is part of reckoning with this American aversion to death, the, the American aversion to looking at really the end of anything. You know, in Europe, the movement toward a circular economy is really gaining speed. This idea that you would ask the manufacturers of products to examine those products before they make them and say, how is the next life of this object built into this object? Is it easily dismantleable so we can use the parts for something else? Where do people drop that off? Where, where do they make that happen? Is it or, repairable? Is it repairable? Um, is it supposed to be multi-use? And there's a way we can sort of check in halfway through its life and do some of that upkeep? Or does it... Um, does it become fully compostable within a reasonable amount of time? These are not questions we're willing to force businesses to ask in the US. We like to think our stuff really just goes away. And in medical, in the medical realm, especially, you know, when conflict minerals were really um, like a hot, like newer topic again in 2012, gold, tin, tantalum, and tungsten from the Great Lakes region of Africa, we had this cultural awareness for a minute that they were inside our 
personal electronics. But no one extended that question to be about medicine, because we assume it's always worth it to save a life. And this sense of like, yeah, but but whose life and at what cost and um, that the way that we sometimes implant pacemakers or ICDs prophylactically, as an insurance plan assumes that they don't come with a high cost. And they do, you know, the, the cost is inherent. And some devices go into a body and for whatever reason, they come right back out and they never get used. Uh, and all of that work of the planet, all of the work of industry was for nothing. And I think we can't approach our um, medical system and its cost problems. You know, a lot of, at least in the US, a lot of the cost in our healthcare system occurs in the final months of someone's life when we're sort of throwing a ton of interventions at them. All of those products have costs too, not just financial. So to examine the way that we die or the way we relate to death is to get up to our elbows in some of our environmental problems, all these things that seem invisible, that don't seem like they carry a cost, and you might as well do that intervention. Well, you might, or you might not, you know, there might be another conscious way to be in relationship to that human experience and to decide like, okay, it actually takes a lot for our planet to make one ICD. This is not a device we're just going to put in someone uh, prophylactically. And it's not a device we're going to put in someone if we think they might die of another condition within a certain amount of time. And I don't want to sound like someone's death panel when I say that. But there is a certain amount of like, consciousness that we have to bring to these conversations that's not fragile, that acknowledges that all of it has a cost. The journey that you take to some of these places, in particular outside the US, um, to try and investigate the origin story of the defibrillator, there's a lot there that didn't surprise me, but there are definitely some hugely thoughtful moments that, while perhaps they didn't surprise me, it was definitely a point of view or an aspect of what feels like a wholly good decision that I had not considered before. And as just one example of many that pop up, I keep thinking of, um, the having, having, having created a mine that destroys part of a forest, the exchange of that is to protect a piece of the forest, right? To, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll destroy this one, but we'll protect this bit over here, sort of in an exchange, right? We'll take and thus we'll give. And that sounds like a win, right? At least it sounds like some kind of appropriate balance. But definitely something that I had never considered and something that you, that you uncover and talk about in the book is that by protecting a forest or protecting a portion of it, there are people who previously relied on being able to access and use the resources of that forest who now can't. Um, and that becomes a loss for them. It becomes a cost. It becomes an unaccounted for cost in an activity that we tried to account for a cost, but there's, it's a, it's a really important reminder that there is no action we can take that is a hundred percent win. There are always <laughs> costs. And there's a quote 
um, in and around this section that really stuck with me as well from your book, which is loss is not experienced in the net. Grief is not a mathematical calculation. The improved resources of one community don't offset the need for subsistence in others. Losses are specific and exact, shapes that can be soothed but not replaced by gifts and programs. That idea of losses being specific and exact is something that we only really understand when we are experiencing the losses and we tend to gloss over or shuffle off in statistics of the net when it's when we're not on the losing side of that loss. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The experience that I had reading corporate social responsibility reports from minds all over the world, and then deciding to go to some of these places in person, really had two parts of my brain working at once. And there is a part of me that is trained in the logic of our society, the logic of capitalism, this idea of transactionality, you ruin one chunk of forest, you save another, and that's even. And that's not that's not, um, it's not as simple as that. No, it's not. And it's not what you notice as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm trying to summarize, like, what is it that we want a mining company to do? (laughs) If every one of these programs that they have then includes people who don't benefit from that program. And now we've strained relationships within the community because some people have and some have not, and everybody used to be closer to the same baseline. Or, um, yeah, there's just a lot of complicated ways that that works out. And I interviewed a mining consultant in Johannesburg at the end of the trip to the mine that you're referring to, which is in Madagascar. And he really talked about the necessity that a company remain in a vulnerable relationship with communities that there's this dynamic back and forth of like, how is it going for you? Like maybe they even had made a plan that they both thought would work and then it didn't actually work in reality. And the sort of corporate model is to say like, well, we fulfilled our end of the contract, right? It's about contractual. Yeah. And in that way, it really mirrors what we were just talking about within the medical system. Like, is this just about plugging in the numbers and we know what's medically necessary and we do the treatment. And so I did the treatment. She didn't die. That's my only obligation versus the sense of like, how are we showing up to the story of something? And if there's no set of actions we can take that won't have unanticipated consequences, what does it mean to stay with that? What does it mean to be accountable? And, and if that is hard, I think that should say something about the choice to engage in that way at all. You know, with mining, I'm really, I really question the appropriateness of industrialized mines, particularly in parts of the world that were colonized by the U S or by Western European nations. Um, or, or from within, in the case of, uh, you know, the white population of South Africa, there's just a sense that some of these power dynamics are so old and so large that any contract we might create is likely not going to serve those who live there. And 
that's really hard to swallow. And within that, you know, if we really weren't going to allow multinational corporations, and and who is we, I don't even know, you need like, a global governing body um, that could prevent something like this. But multinational corporations coming into a place like Madagascar, where the folks in government in the capital do not necessarily represent the folks in these little villages where the people who stand to benefit are very different from the people who stand to be impacted. Like if you actually listened to those villagers and said, like, do you want the project? Do you not want the project? Um, And found a way through some of the rifts in terms of like, well, some people might support the project and some people might not. I mean, there's so much there, even if you didn't do those projects because there was so much complication then there would be this question of, well, then where do we get our resources? And where in the world do we think are the right places to dismantle? What are the right villages to sort of step over? And I think there's just this um, really overwhelming sense among those of us who are using industrial resources that they will keep flowing. And that even though we know in an abstract way that there's a cost to that, you know, climate change is happening or, oh, there's a dead patch here. There's plastic in the ocean. I think it's different to have to get drawn into those specific losses. And that's where making those daily, whether daily choices or healthcare related choices around like, am I about to do something that may actually not be that high impact? Am I doing it because I need to do something because I need to act against death because I need um, this added layer of protection that might not even protect I mean, like to do something we tend to think is better than not doing something to have something is better than not having something Um, to be reconnected with the challenges of actually instituting policies all the way down the line that respect life, respect agency, respect ecosystems. Um, it's, it's really quite a lot. Inaction feels like giving up. Yeah, that's right. Do you regret getting the original defibrillator? It's one of the things I was most unsure about having read your very <laughs> personal story. Sometimes I thought you were deeply regretful longed for your old life and what you lost. And sometimes it felt like you weren't, like you were at peace with the path you traveled, however much of it was chosen or happened to you. Um, I I definitely understood how you felt about getting another one, but I'm unsure as to your thoughts about the first one. Yeah, it's hard it's hard to pretend you could have been anyone other than who you were in the moments you already lived, right? Mm-hmm. I do regret getting the initial ICD. Something in my body always told me that an ICD was not an answer, but there were these other urgencies. Mm-hmm. And the question that I really came to by the end of the book was what were the other ways? those urgencies could have been attended to, you know, what does it mean to be a young person with a diagnosis that means she might die at any minute? And is the, 
treatment plan she's being given really the only treatment plan. Um, there are other medications that I could have tried. We could have titrated my beta blockers. Um, there could have been a way to use a technology called a life vest <laughs> that you, it, um, you wear it like a vest and it watches your heart rate. And it's sort of like having an AED strapped to your body. So it's external, but it is on you in case you pass out. Um, I think just slowing the process, leaving room for some of the uncertainty, it's possible we would have still come to the same conclusion because it was 2009 and the research was where it was. And we just didn't know that there were further experts that we should be reaching toward. You know, we thought an, any electrophysiologist is going to be a good electrophysiologist, more or less, mm -hmm. because they've gone through all this training. So I don't blame myself. Um, but I do, there was a sense of coming full circle at the end of the book, when I learned that I probably did not need it. Uh, and when I have sort of come to understand what all of the baggage is, there's a way that the book is also about being able to hear what our bodies are telling us mm -hmm. and hear it and then actually hear it, right? Not just be vaguely uneasily aware of it, but to to really metabolize it. And then once we've metabolized it, how do we speak about it? And how fiercely are we willing to speak about it? And I don't want to make all of this sound black and white as though I certainly knew um, that I shouldn't have a device. You know, there were all these other complicated feelings going on in relation to the, the ways my sister's life had changed and how that might echo into my life. Um, but I do look back and really grieve a lot for the able-bodiedness that I lost that early on or the other ways that it has marked me, I think I feel less angry about the chapters that take place in 2009 and 2010, where I'm deciding to get the device and sort of having the initial impacts. I feel much less angry about those chapters than I do about 2016 and 2017, in which I am um, fighting within the American healthcare system to access specialists and having a surgery that it was inappropriate for me to have at the hospital where I had it. So there's, there's this sense of like, the further down the road you get, the more rage and grief there is about not just the experiences you've had that you now have to come back from, but the experiences that then you didn't get to have. And I am spiritually able to see that this is an important moment that we have voices who can speak about what it means to live in relationship to death and what it means to push back against this mythos that we can control everything, especially through industrial or technological products. Uh, and I see myself able to be of service and to be of use. Does that mean that I wouldn't like <laughs> make it go away if I could, right? Not, not have the device and just have the genetic condition that actually now seems quite treatable in my case without uh, invasive technology. Um, I would. I think I would. Do you think the question I asked and thinking about the idea of whether or not you regret the decision is a valuable one. Is regret useful in this situation as a a way of thinking about the past? Or is it 
not really useful. It's a, sort of a question I think about a lot in my own life and that I've sometimes mm. talked with other people about because regret is something that is fascinating and can, again, preoccupy us sometimes really extensively. And I struggle with whether or not regret is valuable. I think to heal is to come into alignment with what is. And regret is less useful to me in that regard because it imagines something that isn't now. The act of making a life meaningful when you live with death in sight has a lot more to do with being cognizant of what serves now, how things can be of service today. I think the act of imagining the lives we could have had is important for reasons of grieving, because grief is a form of coming into alignment with what is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't grieve the things they've lost or the transitions they've gone through because it feels too threatening. But on the other side of the grief is this version of our lives where we can fully be of service because we are fully, we have fully integrated our experiences. We are fully the thing the world has shaped us to be instead of trying to be something we are no longer or, or resist the types of heart wisdom that other people actually need us to carry. You know, this process, the process of writing this book and the process of speaking about it, the process of living what I lived through as a young person, pretty alone, you know, not with other young people who are going through these things. And I didn't find a great trauma therapist till really the end of the timeline as it exists in the book. Um, one thing that that's really taught me is death only makes sense in cultures that pay attention to our relationship to one another, to our collective. In an individualistic culture, it makes sense to regret because there's this idea that I could have lived a better life. I could have had more fun, more pleasure, more, more whatever, whatever it is we want. My career could have been smoother without this road bump. Um, in a different cultural setup, when we have elders around us who really know how to hold space for death and the dying process for grieving for loss, there's a sort of like way people who've been through a lot hold this vastness that's available to other people and can actually sort of chuckle in the midst of it. And they understand that like they will go and, and a new child will be born. There's a kind of like cyclical nature to things that in our linear, logical, individualistic society, it's hard to find the meaning in hard experiences because we're told we're just supposed to be productive and happy and good looking and able-bodied. Um, and, and also probably white and rich, right? Mm. <laughs> so I think, um, regret it's not about not looking back. I think it's about whether or not we fully metabolize our experiences and turn them into wisdom. And 
uh, make those available to others and make those available in the way we live our lives and the sort of acts of service that we might have to offer, whether within within our policies or within our personal relationships, that feels different to me than the type of regret that is just crippling or self-flagellating or an inability to sort of get on board with where we are today. Katie, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's been, the book was really interesting and there are pieces in it that I will remember and think about a lot. Um, and thank you so much for your willingness to come on and talk to me about your book and your experiences. It's been really great. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. If you want to learn more about Catherine Standifer or her book, Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life, as usual, you'll be able to find links to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find in those show notes on your podcast catcher of choice or on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.